0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this special time as we anticipate Christmas, as we celebrate the coming of God to man, that God in the flesh came to this earth, that he lived and died so that we might have life and have it abundantly. So Lord, we celebrate the first coming and we anticipate the second coming. And as the candles are lit this morning, we do so in remembrance of Christ our Savior until the day he comes Lord we will celebrate the day that he has come and anticipate the day that he will come for eternity we love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus we pray amen if you have your Bibles we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29 and in Daniel chapter 2 we're gonna start in Jeremiah 29 as we look at the life of Daniel The story of Daniel, a faith in crisis. Uh, We just a reminder of kind of who Daniel is. Daniel is one of the young men who's been taken from his home in Jerusalem uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, uh, basically the Babylonian dictator. He's the ruler uh, of most of the known world at this point. He's the most powerful man on earth. And he comes somewhere around 597 the first time, and he takes off 10,000 individuals, mainly young men, young, uh, educated men, men who uh, were part of the aristocratic society, men who were professionals, and he also takes some women as well, but most of the people he takes are between the ages of about 14 and 20, and that was a common practice in that time historically. And what, ha- what happened is they would take the brightest and the best and it would, uh, first of all, it would cause the people of that nation or of that area to think twice about rebelling because their sons and their daughters and their leaders were with Nebuchadnezzar or with the opposition. The second thing it did is it, it allowed the brightest and the best to come to work for him and to give contribution to his kingdom. So it was very, uh, a very uh, just smart and almost a genius idea, uh, and, and it really helped squelch any type of rebellion. But even in this case, there is a rebellion about 10 years later, but uh, Daniel is in that first group, and so he's found himself as a teenage boy serving in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. The Great King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to not only uh, change his thinking, but change his entire worldview. So he is placed into schools where he learns Babylonian culture, Babylonian religion, Babylonian philosophy. Everything that he can, uh, everything that he can learn about the Babylonian people and their empire, uh, he is asked to do. And he is educated in that manner. And he does such a great job that he rises up to be an advisor or a counselor, so to speak, in the cabinet of Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that the advisors were to do, they were to interpret dreams and to interpret, uh, give understanding to Nebuchadnezzar of the events of that day and how he might lead and how he might gain an advantage. And so that's where we find Daniel. Daniel is uh, a lot uh, like uh, Nelson Mandela who just died here recently. Uh, He is a man who has been taken from his homeland but yet makes the most of the opportunity until that appointed day when God will use him uh, to make a huge impact for his kingdom. And so as we reflect upon that, we're going to go back and we're going to look at Jeremiah 29 here in just a moment. And Daniel does this. Daniel makes the decision. And a matter of fact, we all have the decision to make. How am I going to handle a culture that is completely averse to my worldview, to my way of thinking? It, is, it does not share my values. It certainly does not share my faith. How will I operate and how will I exist in a culture and an environment like that. And we have to ask that same question to a degree, don't we? And the question usually is answered by most people in one of what I will call two extremes. Some people say, well, you just simply assimilate into the culture. You don't fight it. Don't worry about it. Just kind of join in the culture this is what most people believe this is what most people think and if you're not careful as as a believer in Christ uh, when you get in those environments where your values are not uh, affirmed and where people don't think like you and don't believe it's easy to just kind of say well I don't want to rock the boat and I'll just kind of assimilate into the culture maybe you don't say it that way but that's what we find ourselves doing others will say you need to separate yourself separate yourself from them don't talk to them. You know, get, if, you, if it's, you're in a neighborhood where you're the only believer, then just stay in the house. If you're in a work environment, just stay in your cubicle and don't come out. Just separate yourself. I was at a church one time where there's a group of people, a small group of people, uh, they were working to completely separate themselves from the whole culture, from the whole society. They were, I mean, it was kind of a David Koresh kind of thing, you know. Jim Jones, they were going to buy this piece of land. They were going to move down there and kind of establish their own nation. And they were just going to completely separate from the culture. But it's interesting. That's not the biblical model that we see and it's certainly not what Daniel did. Daniel certainly did not assimilate. He takes some huge stance as well to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, "You know, there are lines that we will not cross." And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But they also didn't say, "Well, we're leaving." <laughs> We're not staying here. Matter of fact, you may not realize this, but if you went back and read Jeremiah 28, there was a false prophet named Hananiah. He said, now they've taken us away from their homeland, but we're not going to go inside the city. You stay out here. Don't build homes. Don't, don't. We're not staying here long. Let's just dwell in tents, and we'll do what they ask, but there's a day coming when we're not going to be staying here anyway. And he began to prophesy, and he was a false prophet. He began to say, in two years, we're going home and we're taking all our goods with us. We're taking all all the things from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar took out of our temple. We're taking it back, and it's going to be good news. And people said, that's great, that's great. Yeah, let's don't build houses. Let's don't move in. Let's don't be a part of the economic process. Let's just stay out here and wait, and let's completely separate ourselves. And we'll do whatever work we have to do, but we're going to completely remove ourselves. But that's not what... Jeremiah told them. That's not what God told them through the prophet Jeremiah. There was another voice in chapter 28, Hananiah, who was given a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, so to speak, and people were going, yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to do nothing, and God's going to take care of this, and we're not going to do anything, and we're just going to separate ourselves, but Jeremiah said, no, here's the deal. You're going to need to be engaged, and you're going to be here for a while, this is God's judgment and God has brought you to this place for this time and this is the way it's going to be. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 29, which I believe to be the blueprint for Daniel's life. The reason that Daniel can live like he lives and respond like he responds is because he had heard the prophet Jeremiah, who was home while Jeremiah was home, had heard these preaching. He had probably heard it from his parents, and it has a huge impact. Now, a lot of times we read twenty nine eleven and we just take that verse, and we just uh, remove that. Maybe some of you have it at your home, and we love that verse, but let's understand the background that goes along with Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to start with the fourth verse. Jeremiah being the prophet, the weeping prophet, not a popular prophet. We don't see any converts that he has. God tells him, look, you're going to preach this word and everybody's going to reject you and everybody's going to hate you. Uh, I don't want you to take a wife. I don't want you to have children. I don't want you to go be faithful. You know what Jeremiah said? I don't want to do that, (laughs) just like you would say. But God calls him and he is ultimately faithful. And this is where we find him preaching the message to his people, to the exile. In verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Remember, Daniel is one of these exiles. He's one of these people that's been removed from his home, and ultimately they will all be uh, exiled. And here's what he tells him. Jeremiah is saying, you're in Babylon. Here's what you're to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives And have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And then he says this. This is amazing. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Babylon. Babylon who have come and they've conquered their land and they've removed them from their city. They've removed them from their homeland. And he is saying, I want you to pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Wow! God, you want me to pray for this city? You want me to pray for this people? Yes, that's absolutely right. Let me just sidebar for just a second. If God told Jeremiah and the people of Israel to pray for the city that they were in, to pray for the nation they were in, how much more are we supposed to pray for our nation? How much more are we supposed to pray for our leaders? How much more are we supposed to pray for our government? Regardless of what your political affiliation is, that's from the Word of God right there. And if we don't do anything else as American citizens outside of vote, we ought to be praying for our leadership. And that's what they're being asked to do in a, in a time where it, In our minds, it wouldn't even make any sense. Jeremiah tells them, pray for your city. Pray for the welfare, and in it you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Hananiah, the false prophet, he had a dream. He had a dream that, hey, we're going back in a couple years, and everything's going to be great, and we'll be fully restored. And it was a very popular message. People love to hear, oh yeah, I can't wait, that's good. But see, here's the problem. This nation has been unfaithful for a long time. And the problem is, is God has deemed Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment. And this is the way it's going to be. And you don't get to change it like that right now. It doesn't matter what preacher you listen to. It doesn't matter how bad you want it. This is where you are. Recognize that the wages of sin is death and the wage and the consequences of sins. I will forgive you and there will be an ultimate restoration. But this time is coming and I'm going to use it to redeem and to refine you. This is what's going to happen. Not a message that they want to hear, not a message that we want to hear. So, these dreams that you're having, these thoughts that you're having, I can tell you that they're not right. You need to listen right here to the word of the Lord from Jeremiah. The dreams that they're having are lies. And they are prophesying to you in my name, and I did not send them, declares the Lord. That's not my message. That's not my word. Hard. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 10 should always be understood in the context of verse 11. I said, you know what? From the time the exile began in, it's going to be 70 years. So what does that mean for most people hearing that? We're not going to be here when they go back. Gee, it's not popular at all. But you know what? Your children will. Some of you might. Some of you might hit 85, 86, 87 years old, but your life's going to be pretty much over at that point. But your children, in this generation, I'm going to fulfill my promise, but... It is God who is causing these events to occur. This is in the sovereign will of God. And then he gives the promise, the promise that we love so much, the promise that he will fulfill. He says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you future and a hope. I have plans. There are, the restoration of Jerusalem will come. The restoration of your homeland will come. It will return. But you know what? This is the time that I have to refine you. When you come out of this time, you'll be so thankful and so grateful, and you'll recognize it's only by my mercy and by my grace. Now, let's turn over to Daniel chapter 2. Those words must have had a tremendous impact on Daniel, because Daniel's one of those that he goes and he builds his home, he makes his life, he takes his vocation seriously. He lives there, and he thrives there, and he's in the king's court. He's taken the words of Jeremiah literally. Where many of these other young men may have assimilated into the culture, many of them separated, Daniel said, I will be faithful where I am planted. I will not compromise my values, but this is where God has placed me as the prophet prophet Jeremiah has spoken. And you know the story here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar begins to have a dream, and his dream is that uh, he sees this great statue made of gold and his gold and silver and and bronze and iron but it but it falls, a stone comes and hits its feet and destroys it, and then it is no more. He keeps having this dream over and over again, and so he calls all his counselors, his wise men, his interpreters, his soothsayers, his astronomers, and he says. I want to know what, I want you to tell me what my dream is, and I want you to tell me what it means. They said, Well, sure, oh great king, tell us what your dream is, and we'll interpret for you, and we'll give it to you. He goes, No, if you're so smart, you know, you're on my payroll, and you say that you know the mysteries, you tell me what my dream is. And two or three times they go back, Oh, well, tell us what it is, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he goes, No. And then finally, the last time he gets mad, and he goes, I tell you what. If you don't tell me what my dream is so that I know what you're saying is true and and then give me an interpretation, I'm going to have you all killed. Every one of you wise guys. I'm going to have every one of you killed here. I'm going to do away with you. And I'm going to to, uh, demolish your homes. So, now, tell me. And they go, no one could ever tell you that. There's not anyone. That's information only the gods would have. And Jeremiah hears about it. Excuse me, and Daniel hears about it. And he hears that there has been an edict out that all of the interpreters, all the wise men, all the Chaldeans, all the astrologers, they're all to be killed. Verse 12, Daniel chapter 2. Because of this, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions because, remember, Daniel is a part of this group. He is one who's been trained in Babylonian culture and philosophy and religion. He is regarded as a wise man. He is regarded as a counselor. So he is, everybody's lumped into this group at this point. And so. Uh, the decree went out that the wise men would be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. And then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. I, I think that's the first lesson that we learn right here. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of opposition, how does he respond? The Bible says that Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king. Why is the king's decree so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel goes in faith. He said, "Arioch, make me an appointment with the king, and I will show him the interpretation. Now, he doesn't have the interpretation yet. But he is of the same spirit as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're asked to bow to the idol. Uh, God can deliver us. God will provide. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow. He believes that in faith in advance. He believes in advance that God will give him the interpretation. If he doesn't, then, hey, that's part of the sovereign will of God. That's where I will rest. And so the Bible says uh, that he went and he requested the, the appointment. So that he might give the interpretation of the king, not even knowing what the dream is. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Hebrew names. And his companions. And told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning the mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of that night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Okay, in the interest of time, we're going to skip down. Let's move to verse 25. So you see what's happened? Daniel has prayed. He's asked his friends to pray. He's made an appointment. God has revealed to him the dream. And now he's coming before Nebuchadnezzar to give the dream in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Now, what does the name Daniel mean? you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago, Daniel means what? God is my judge. The Lord slash Yahweh is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel is God. He's a Babylonian God. They've tried to rename him. They've tried to reculturize him. They've tried to convert him, so to speak. But he still knows that Yahweh is is his judge. He says, "'Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation?' Then Daniel answered the king and said, "'No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries that he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and your visions in your head that you lay in bed are these.'" To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came the thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. He said, here's the deal, king. It's The interpretation has been given to me. The dream has been revealed to me. But not because I'm a soothsayer. Not because I've been uh, educated in Babylonian culture. Not because I've been uh, educated in Babylonian dream interpretation. That's not it. It's because the God that I serve, the God that I know, knows all things. He knows all mysteries. And he, in his grace and infinite mercy, has revealed your dream to me. He's given you a dream. And I think, you know, a lot of times there's, there's a lot of debate, what does all this mean? And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I think in the immediate moment, Nebuchadnezzar kind of knew what it meant. Well, the reason I think that, if you go to chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, you see that Nebuchadnezzar establishes a huge statue of gold. Now, what do you think that statue was of? I'll tell you what I think it was and what most scholars think. They think. I think it was of Nebuchadnezzar. He had built this huge gold statue of himself. And he keeps having this dream that this statue is going to be crushed by this rock and that it's going to fall and it's going to disintegrate. And he has this dream over and over and it's very disturbing because he, th- he probably suspects, I-, I think I know what that means. And I don't, I don't want that to be what it is, but I think I, think I know. And so he has this dream. And matter of fact, I have a little slide I want to show you. And he has a dream about a gold kingdom that will occur. Well, that one's pretty easy to figure out. He's established a gold statue of himself, and we see that in chapter 3. And this is probably a representation of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So the Babylonian Empire is that of gold. The second one is the Medo Persian Empire. Matter of fact, Daniel will serve in this one for a brief time as well. And it's the kingdom of silver. It's not quite as strong, but it's still a powerful and probably the most powerful uh, organization or, or army and kingdom of that day, the Medo Persian Empire. And then, of course, the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great will come. And that's the one of bronze. And then last, the Roman Empire, represented by the iron. So we see those elements listed there. We see the gold, we see the silver, we see the bronze, and then we see the iron. And then at the end of the dream, he says, and the feet were made of a mixture of clay and iron. And there's a stone that comes in, and it hits that foundation, and it destroys everything to where it simply blows away and there's nothing left. Now, what is the rock of Scripture? What is the stone, What is the cornerstone of Scripture? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter sixteen? Upon this rock I will build my church. Upon the rock of Christ, the kingdom of God will ultimately reign, and it will destroy all other kingdoms. But it will be the one lasting and eternal kingdom. Now let's uh, jump over, if you would, with me to uh, let's jump over to verse forty-four. And in those days, the days of those kings, the God of the heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now, he's talking about the reference. He's talked about there's been the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. But he said there's coming a day, there's coming a day where the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor the kingdom will be left to another people. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, after his kingdom's over... The Medes and the Persians come in. And then we, uh, we see the, the, um, the, Greece, the Greeks come in. And then we see the Romans come in. But he said, there's coming a day where there will not be another kingdom that sh- sh- will come. He said, they shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to, one an- to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Uh, by the way... We don't have time to get into it, but if you look at Daniel Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, you see the same type of writing. Matter of fact, it's written in the same genre and the same vernacular. And so those chapters uh, mesh together. Uh, and it also gives us a picture of the ultimate future. Now, I don't think they were thinking that at this time, uh, but that's the great, the great word. Abraham Heschel, the great uh, Jewish scholar, says, you know, this, the wonderful thing about God's prophecy is it has a meaning for that day, it has a meaning for tomorrow, and it has a meaning for eternity. That's the power of the Word of God, the power of the prophetic nature of the Word of God. And so in verse 45... The Bible says, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. He's saying that stone didn't come from humanity. He said it's not been cut from a mountain by human hands. It came and it broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And this dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now, I know that's a lot uh, to... To digest in a short period of time, but I think there's some things that we can glean uh, from Daniel and from his experience. The first one we talked about, when we are in a place of opposition, when we are in hard times, we always have to make the decision whether we will assimilate or whether we will separate. And the truth of it is we make that decision long before that moment. Number two, dreams. Can we always trust dreams? Well, we looked in Jeremiah chapter 29 earlier and uh, Jeremiah said, look, don't trust your dreams. Don't count on the dreams that you're having. That was a very common way for people to interpret what God had said during that time. And we see it through the scripture. We know Joseph interpreted dreams. Uh, We know even Joseph in the New Testament, Jesus' uh, earthly father uh, had a dream that God revealed to him. So sometimes God does use dreams and he did use dreams, but more often than not, dreams are usually us simply working out our subconscious fears and desires. So we have to be careful of that, just simply because I dream it. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, to test the spirits, to make sure they are of God. Not every spirit that comes to you is of God. How do we test the spirits? Well, very briefly, first of all, uh, does it line up with Scripture? Number two, does it affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And number three, does it work for the benefit of His kingdom? You have to start there. Okay, you have to always start there. If it's just about you or something you want to do, it's usually you just working things out in your subconscious. But nevertheless, so we can't always trust all of our dreams. And number three, as we look at, it, there are the kingdoms, there's man's kingdom. We see the kingdoms that were uh, given to us in this passage. uh, The kingdom of of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of Greece, and the kingdom of the Roman Empire. But ultimately, the one kingdom that will stand forever is God's kingdom. We saw that in verse 44, as we read earlier in Daniel chapter 2 here. So what are the principles that we can glean from this today? What are the principles that we can learn from Daniel's life and from this story? Well, first of all, let's talk about it. First of all, don't conform to the environment you're in just because the predominant voice is ascribing that's what truth is or that's what's, that's what's right. We see that in our culture, don't we? We're coming up with more and more issues in our culture that the voice that is loudest is the one that flies in the face of the Word of God whether that be the definition of marriage, uh, whether that be uh, in the issue of tolerance. It's interesting for me, for tolerance today is the big word. But let me tell you two groups of people who are not tolerant. First of all, religious people. When people are very religious and they say, you know what, I'm the one that's right and everybody else is wrong. And my my understanding uh, of church, my church, Uh, whether it be the Baptist church or the Methodist church or whatever, when we come to that place where we start to put our stock and we start to put our faith in a church and in a person's position, we have to be careful of that, okay? Because ultimately it's the Word of God that defines us and guides us. It's it's our faith and our relationship with Christ. So it's not necessarily what a denomination says, okay? It's not necessarily what uh, some individual says. We have to ascribe to Scripture, okay? Number two... When someone says, as I would, as many of you would say, I believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and life, no man comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. Some people, it's funny, even in Hollywood today, you keep people, the the new word that you can't say is Jesus unless it's said in slang. That's the word you can't say. That's the word. Talk about intolerance. I now cannot speak the name Jesus. I shared last week, most of you weren't here, so I can share it again. Um, Last week, I, I prayed at a civic organization. Uh, this has been a, a few years ago. I prayed at a civic organization, and at the end of my prayer, they said, Would you come pray? We're doing a Christmas special here. We'd love for you. And Would you pray at the end of it? That's so I got through. I prayed, and I said, In the name of Jesus. And I had a guy come up to me and goes, I want you to know that I am so offended that you would even mention the name of Jesus in this setting. You know, I did not come here to hear the name Jesus. Matter of fact, I think the proper thing is to mention no God. To my to my response is then why pray, you know if if why why would I come here on a night and pray to nobody okay, and uh, but I said I get that and I respect your opinion and that's your right to believe, but let me tell you who I am, and I can't assimilate your culture and I'm not trying to separate, but this is who I am so when I pray and when I'm asked to pray I'm always going to pray to Jesus because it's it's the only God and it's who I am it's why I exist. And to remove Jesus from my prayer is to remove prayer from my life, okay? So that, that's a common, and it, you know, and I get that. Again, I want, to respect, I want to respect people's opinions because we all choose whether we're going to follow Christ. I don't believe that uh, God is, uh, coerces or forces. Uh, I believe at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a decision what you will do with Jesus Christ and uh, how you will respond to him. But if I do that, It shouldn't have to be intolerant that I can't say this is what I personally believe. This is where I stand. Daniel was in that position. And he says, even as he's doing the interpretation, this is what I believe. He said it in chapter 1. This is where I am. And if it costs me, we see in chapter 3, we will not bow to the idol. We'll be a part of your culture. We'll work. We'll work hard. We'll support you. We'll pray for you. But there's a line that we will not cross. At the end of the day, we belong to Yahweh and he is our God, and we will not reject him nor worship another. Do not conform, do not hide, do not separate, as we talked about earlier. Do not remove yourself, but seek to redeem the culture, to restore, uh, to reform the culture that you're in. That's why God places us in work environments, in neighborhoods, in families, where other people don't possess our faith or our values, and how are you going to handle that? I don't talk to her. I don't talk to him. That's right. I stay on this side of the room. He stays on that side of the room. They know what I think. I. Ain't... That's no, that's not it. <laughs> okay. And the other thing is, doing you don't get you don't point your finger in their face. You don't tell them they're right and you're wrong, or you're wrong and they're right. Okay. I guess you wouldn't want to do that anyway. But nevertheless, how do you handle that? Well, you engage. And you do what Daniel did. You're prudent, and you, act, you use discretion, and you develop a relationship. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that when I come in that spirit and I pray and ask God, that eventually things happen in people's lives that all of a sudden they want to know. What happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life? He had no interest in Daniel's God until the dream, until the crash. And when he views his dream as crashing, I, you know, I've seen that happen in, in neighbor's lives and friend's life. I don't have to make it happen now. But if I will pray and be faithful and listen and be cordial and be available, that God usually opens up a door. May not happen this year. May not happen five years. May not happen t- God usually opens up a door. And that's the time that we walk through because we've laid the groundwork. That's exactly what Daniel did right here. There's a guy named Frank Lubach who was a a seminary professor in the Philippines. He had become the vice president, and his dream was to become the president of that little seminary of about 200 people. But um, when that seminary uh, president retired, they asked someone else to come in and be the president. And Frank was just destroyed. He was a great linguist, a great teacher, but he wanted to be the president. So he literally left and went into the Philippine jungle and stayed out there a few days just sulking, mad, upset, and he began to pray. And he said, after a few days, God just really spoke to him and said, "Frank, what is your gifting?" He said, "Well, lingu- linguistics." And he had been teaching people how to read and write. He had come up with a system that was really working very well. He said, "You know, I want you to take this nationally and internationally." I want to use you in a big way. And so Frank came back and he put all his efforts into the linguistics, into the translation. And now this is one of the most successful linguistic translation organizations in the world today. He's literally taught millions through this system to read and to write. In Frank's opinion, he thought, I just want to be the president of this seminary. That's my goal. And God, you didn't do that. You weren't faithful. Why didn't you let me be the president? I've been faithful here. I've been praying. I've been striving. I've been working. And God had such a bigger picture, but He had to close this door to open this door. I wonder how Daniel felt about that. Doors, little doors, keep closing, keep putting. And then God opens this big door. Now you have the voice in the ear of the most powerful individual in the world, in the known world, Nebuchadnezzar, listening to you. And God grants him favor because he's faithful. Where did it all start? It started with some prophet that nobody listened to, nobody liked, named Jeremiah 20 years before. And Daniel listened. He took it to heart, and he lives it out. Now, How did Daniel handle this crisis in the immediate, in the immediate crisis that he went? Well, I think there's some lessons we can glean there as, as well. He prayed. He prayed. First of all, he prays for wisdom. He asks for understanding. Number two, he, for understanding and interpretation. Number two, he prays specifically Number three, he prays persistently. Number four, he prays corporately. What do I mean by corporately? He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, "I want you and, he, and his companions." He says, "I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray for me and with me, and pray that God will give me this revelation." He prays obediently, and then last of all, he prays proclaiming. When God gives him that interpretation, he says, "Praise be God! Bless God who has revealed these things to me." Not, it, what, it didn't come from me. I can take no credit. I can take no benefit. God has blessed it. He's shown mercy, and he has revealed it to me today. We never know what God is doing, do we? A guy named Bill Fong over here in Plano is a bowler. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of the holy grail. Most of us, we would think bowling 300, if you know anything about bowling, 300 is a perfect game. That's 10 straight strikes, okay? And it's probably not happened for anybody. Any, anybody ever do 10 straight strikes? Okay. A four-year-old in the last service. But nevertheless, um, (laughs) so, I mean, it's really, really rare that it happens. But if you're a professional, what's really, really rare is this, is that you do three sets in a row, okay? So it's a series. So you bowl a 900. That's the ultimate. There's only 21 people uh, in the world that have done this, uh, that, you know, that they've recognized. And so Bill Fong, uh, bowler over here in Plano, is at Super Bowl over here in Plano, and He's bowling. He bowls a 300. Goes through another game. He's bowled 600. They're in their big league. Everybody's there. They're all watching. So he gets to the third one. He's bowling strikes left and right. And you've got to do a total of 35. 35 and you bowl a 900. You've done the perfect series. And so he's at 33. And he said he started feeling sick and kind of nauseous. He said, I almost felt like I wanted to throw up, but I had to keep going. So he said, you know, I kind of gathered myself. I went up. And I rolled strike. 33. 34, he goes, I'm still feeling bad, but I'm going to get through this strike. 35, he said, man, I'm, I'm feeling awful at this point. You know, everybody's cheering and crazy, and it's just like, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I guess it's the moment. He goes up and he throws the bolt, and everybody starts to cheer when he rolls it. And he hits the pins. It looks like they're all coming down, and then the number 10 pin is wobbling, and it stays up. 899. 899. And everybody just kind of sinks. And they said, you know, some of the reporters said it was, it was just like everybody singing. They go, good job. And he's going, just everybody kind of walks away and kind of leaves, you know. <laughs> and here's poor Bill. And, and Bill's not feeling good anyway. So he goes home and he says, I throw up. And I'm just thinking, oh, this was just too much for me. And he said, I just feel really sick. And the next day he still feels bad. He goes to the doctor. And the doctor says, you had a stroke and you were on the verge of having a heart attack. He said, you know what I think? I think that if you would have lost that last pin," That your, your blood pressure would have so escalated that it would have killed you. He goes, That probably saved your life not knocking that last pin down. What's, what's the pin in your life that's wobbling today? That you're thinking, God, why didn't you do that for me? Why didn't you come through? God, if you would have just done that, and God's got this bigger picture the stone has hit your little statue. And God's saying, you know what? I'm looking at this bigger picture. I'm looking at this eternal kingdom picture. And it may not make sense to you right now, but I'm going to redeem all things. And I want you to trust me and be faithful where you are today. Even with what seems a tragedy, even what doesn't make sense, even though you feel like I've left the last pin standing for no reason, know that I am sovereign and in control and ultimately... I will use all things for my glory. Do you believe that? If not, I want to invite you to know the one who can make you believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, I pray for those today who are struggling in crisis. God, I pray that you help us to not feel the need to assimilate into the world's philosophy, nor simply run away and hide But say, God, I want you to use my situation. I want you to use me. I want you to use this last pin that's standing to bring you glory. And so, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to walk forward. And until you open that door, I will trust you. And God, just like Daniel, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, even if you don't, I will still trust you because I believe that there is a life coming for eternity where you redeem all things and all things are made new. And so, Lord, I'm putting my hope and I'm putting my faith in you and that you are the sovereign ruler of the nation and that you are God who redeems and restores all things. So, God, I pray that you would just use me right here in my own lane tonight, my own lane right here this morning. If there's one that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray today that they would be drawn to you (laughs) that you would speak to them, that they'd recognize that all are sinners and fallen short. But God, you are perfect, and you long to have relationship with us. You long to grant forgiveness when we recognize that we're sinners, and that you and you alone can bring salvation through your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would convict them, Lord, to confess that they are sinners, they need you, and that you are God, and receive your grace and salvation today. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.